and the air conditioner's broken. So we're going to talk about hell. This is what it's like. It's hot and you have to listen to sermons. So it's not going to get better. I'm sorry. The only way to fix it, it's up in the girls' bathroom and that will cause us more problems than it being hot. So everybody should have a little, just fan. Uh, we said last week, so we're in the middle of this sermon. It's the last sermon Jesus gives, and he's talking about his return and the end of the age. We looked at the, the disciples are saying, when is all of this going to happen, and what are, what are the signs of all of this happening? And we kind of looked through that. Here's this slide that kind of recaps what we talked about last week. We mentioned all of these different events that kind of go on. You've got birth pains, that's earthquakes and famine and persecution and the gospel being spread. We said that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. Those birth pains just mean that you're living in between Jesus' first and second coming. They're not an indication of anything. So the stuff that we read about in the newspaper and people trying to connect the dots, doesn't, it, it's not biblical. This abomination that causes desolation tied into the Antichrist in Revelation 13, tied into the man of lawlessness in Thessalonians, but nobody knows who that is. Either then you have this great tribulation, tribulation is squeezing or pressing together. Uh, according to Revelation, it's going to be set, or Daniel, it's seven years, but that number could be symbolic. Then you have these cosmic events, sun turning black and the moon turning to blood and stars falling out of the sky. And take your guess at whatever that means. It's poetic language for sure, but something is going on cosmically and then Jesus returns. So that's kind of the order of these things. There's no timetable given. I said, for me, I believe in what's called a post-tribulation rapture. So that means you've got to go through that squeezing before Jesus returns. You can believe in a pre-tribulation rapture if you want. You'll probably be severely disappointed. But you can still, by all means, hang on to that hope. And we said the, the question for us is not where we are on the timeline. It doesn't matter. The question is, are we standing firm until the end? That's what Jesus says. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so that's the issue for us is, are we standing firm? We have the, all of these events are so far outside of our control that to get hung up on them is really pointless. And what Jesus says is just hang in there. And we'll look actually next week much more specifically at what it means to stand firm until the end. The section we're going to look at today It's Jesus just hammering home. He says it multiple times and he gives several examples to just say, you're not going to be able to figure it out. When I come back, it's it's going to be unexpected. You're you're not going to know the time and it's going to be sudden in the sense of it's going to be a surprise. So starting in verse 36. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I don't know that anything could be more clear than that. No one knows about that day or hour when Jesus is going to return. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So automatically, right off the bat, anybody that tells you they've got a line on when Jesus is coming back, what is the answer? No. No. I read something yesterday. 2070 A.D. is when Jesus is returning. So you can mark, you young, y'all can mark that down. I'll be dead. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will appear. So what, what he's saying here, his coming, the day of his return is unknown. We just said that. You, you can't do the math. You can't read the tea leaves. The section right before this is this idea, this fig tree. And he says when the, when the branches get tender and the leaves turn green, then you'll know that you know summer is near. And the same way is true when you're experiencing those events that we just looked at then you'll know that his coming is near. But near, doesn't, it doesn't give you a day that you can circle on the calendar. It doesn't mean that there's not a day circled. Very easily, the Father in heaven has a day circled on the calendar. He's just not sharing that information with anybody. Those of you who either have had babies or been connected to someone who does, you have the, the labor pains and all of that. All of that says, hey, the baby is near, but it doesn't tell you exactly when the baby is going to come. All of these things that we looked at, the... The, the earthquakes, the famines, the wars, the rumors of wars, the persecution, the gospel being spread, this abomination that causes desolation, all of those things just point to the fact that Jesus' return is near, but it doesn't give you a time frame other than near. That's it. And good luck trying to figure out what near means. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. We said last week, so as far as he's concerned, it's only been a weekend. Since Jesus was ascended to heaven, it's been 2,000 years. For him, that's nothing. And so for us to try to pinpoint time on the calendar or try to place ourselves on the Bible prophecy chart is pointless. It actually takes away from what we should be doing, which is trying to figure out what does it look like to stand firm until the end. There's only one sign given. The disciples say, give us a sign. How will we know the sign? In verse 30, Jesus says, this is the only sign you're going to get, my, me in the sky. The sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, coming back. And at that point, the show is over. There's nothing else to know because Jesus has come back. So all of these events that lead up to his return, none of them are irrefutable or indisputable. They're not, they're, they're, they're not uh, incontrovertible. They can be misunderstood. They can be ignored. Just like in his first coming, we look at it and go, how, how did y'all miss this? Born of a virgin in this town. He was born of a virgin in this town. How do you not put those things together? All of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that we look at, how did these guys not understand? None of those things as they were happening were indisputable. All of them could be misunderstood or ignored. And the same thing is true approaching his second coming. Everything that we read about last week can be misunderstood and can be ignored. He's looking for faith. And so at the point where he can't be misunderstood or ignored anymore, then it's too late because faith no longer plays into the equation. That's why he says in Philippians, ultimately every knee will bow and ultimately every tongue will confess because they won't have a choice. If you read through the Old Testament, when God shows himself for who he is, everybody falls down. It doesn't, ma it doesn't matter. You, you can't help it. And when Jesus reveals himself at the end of time, and you can read about it in Revelation 19, when the, whatever that looks like, white horse and sword coming out of your mouth, that I, don't, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But it's going to be so universal, just like you can see lightning in the east from the west, that's what Jesus says. And it's going to be so uh, tangible, so concrete, 
so undeniable, at that point it's too late to make a decision for him. So the only sign given is that the show is over. It's when the curtain drops on everything. Everything up to that point can still be misunderstood, can still be ignored. This idea of Noah's flood, you can go back and read about that in Genesis 6 through 9 and kind of how that plays out. I think what we're seeing here, the connection, is he's saying just like Noah's flood, it was, it was sudden. And it came upon everybody but Noah and his family suddenly. Genesis 7, 4, God actually tells Noah, I mean, it's going to start raining in seven days. And then it does, and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and the whole thing floods. Noah had a clue about that because he had to get into the ark and all the animals start showing up and all that jazz. I think what Jesus is talking about, particularly the suddenness, not just unexpected, but sudden for people who aren't connected to him. We at least have been given enough to know, hey, his coming is near. I don't know if that means tomorrow or next year or 100 years or, or whatever, but I know every day that I live, I'm a day closer to him returning because that is a, a fixed time. So I can, in some sense, begin to prepare for that, even though I don't know exactly when he's coming. Again, those of you who've had babies, you get the nursery ready and you paint it and you get the crib and all the cute little stuff. You're getting ready. You don't know exactly when the baby's coming. You know the baby will come, and every day you're pregnant is a day closer to delivery. And you know that delivery is it's firm. It's going to happen. You just don't know exactly when, and so you make preparations. And so we can do that same type of thing. Although I don't know exactly when Jesus is going to return, I know he's going to return, and I know I'm a day closer to that today than I was yesterday, and I'll be a day closer still tomorrow than today. So although I don't have an exact timetable, I can get ready. I think what Jesus is talking about with this flood is but there are plenty of people who don't. They don't see the events going on. They don't understand what's going on. They don't recognize, hey, the fig tree is, is, is turning green, so that means summer is coming. And so for them, they're going to be taken away. If you remember the flood, some people see in that take away, they see a rapture of the church. And so if you've seen some of those awfully produced left behind movies where you've got the Christian driving the airplane and suddenly he's raptured and the plane crashes. Does that sound a whole lot like God to you? No. You create these incredible scenarios where all the Christians are zapped out of heaven and whatever they're doing just goes, it's just chaos. In the flood, who were the people who were taken? Everybody who wasn't on the ark. I think the picture there, one is left and one is taken. The people who are taken are taken to judgment. According to Revelation, we get to inhabit the earth. The earth is renewed and recreated and we're going to live here forever. So the picture to me is not that we get snatched away somewhere else. It's that people who aren't connected to Jesus are suddenly taken away to judgment. And you can read about that in Revelation 21 and what that looks like in Revelation 20, I think, and what that looks like when everything kind of gets laid bare and we're all standing before this great white throne of judgment. And God says it's time to settle up. I think that's what's going on in that picture. And so Jesus says we've got to be prepared. He says keep watch or be alert because you don't know when the Lord will come. Then verse 43, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch or he would have been alert. He wouldn't have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready or prepared because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him again to get that, that idea of the unexpected return of Jesus. Verse 45, this is a parable. 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his house to give them the food at their proper time? So we have a, like a head servant who's responsible for these others. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns, who's doing what his master asked him to do. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Or here's another option. Suppose the servant is wicked, says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place where the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember when we looked at Matthew 23, all those woes, hypocrites. That was a category we did not want to fall into. Much of Jesus's anger lands on those guys. And what he's saying about this servant is he's, he's in the same boat. He's in the same company. And he's going to experience the same fate as them. Next week, we're going to look in depth at what it means to, to watch, to be prepared, to be ready. There's three parables Jesus tells in Matthew 25 that explain all of that. So next week, we'll dive into that uh, in depth. What I want you to hear this week is just simply this, the idea that his coming, is, it's, you can't know the date. It's going to be unexpected. But that doesn't mean you can't be ready. And the focus for us is this idea of of not knowing when he's coming. For some of us, we're planners, and that can create uncertainty and stress and anxiety. For some of us, we can get this idea like this servant, well, I don't know if he's ever coming back, so I can do whatever I want to do. My hope is that what's communicated through this is is the importance of maintaining relationship. We've talked before those six words, love God, love people, make disciples. If you're doing that, then it really doesn't matter if you're living in the great tribulation or not. If you're loving God and loving people and making disciples, it doesn't matter who the abomination that causes desolation is, and it doesn't matter what the mark of the beast is, and it doesn't matter what, what's going on kind of in, in the world in terms of how that ties into biblical prophecy. None of those things matter if you're loving God and loving people and making disciples. That's what he's looking for from us. He's looking for us to be faithful, to stand firm until the end. I have no, I I don't control any of those things. What I can do is maintain my relationship with the one who is in charge of all of those things. And so wherever you put me on the continuum, on the timeline, wherever I happen to fall, it does, it's irrelevant because I'll be okay because I'm fulfilling my responsibilities. And again, we'll look more next week at what those responsibilities are. Here's an interesting passage in Hebrews 10. This is actually all one sentence, even though it's a really long paragraph. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So what the writer says, because of all of this, because of what Jesus has done. Again, this is one sentence, so he wants you to understand all of this and me to understand all of this as one thought. So because of all these things that Jesus has done, and then he gives us five things that we're supposed to do. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In your Bible, the word day is probably capitalized. It's referring to the day of the Lord when Jesus returns, what we just were talking about. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is because of what Jesus did the first time he came and because of the fact that he's coming again, so given all of these things that he did, 
through his life, death, and resurrection, and given the fact that he is going to be returning, here are the things that you need to do. And they're listed. We have this little list. Here are the five things that he says we need to be doing. He says we need to draw near to God. Check. We get that. That's that whole idea of maintaining relationship. Hold on to the hope that we profess. We live in a world that really undermines the hope that we profess. And so he says you've got to hold on to that. Consider how you may spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's being the body of Christ. Don't give up meeting together. That, to me, doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of them. And then he says, encourage one another. So again, out of those five, the fourth one to me seems a bit out of place. Honestly, it just doesn't seem as important. When I look at all of those, I could go, check, 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 question mark, check. Is it really that important that we not give up meeting together? Today is our small group Sunday. Y'all notice the way I... <laughs> and this is what we want for you. I want you to be in a relationship like this, Grady. We show that. That's what I want for you. I don't care if you're in a small group at Stonebridge. That's irrelevant to me. I don't, it, what I want is that for every one of you. If you don't have people, as you read that list, if there are not names and faces coming into your mind, then that's not a great indicator for you. If, you're not, if they're not relationships that you're transparent, that means you allow people to see into your life and vulnerable. That means you allow them to speak into your life. They don't just know what's going on. You actually allow them to have some say-so in how you're going to move forward. If you're not with people who love God and love you, it's not enough for them just to love you. They've got to love God as well. And you also, also are mutually invested in one another's spiritual growth and ministry. So it's not just people who know what's going on in your life and love you who are Christians. Are you actually investing in one another's spiritual growth? If you're not, then you're not meeting together the way Hebrew says you should be meeting together. If you think back over your, the trajectory of your Christian life, I would just about guarantee that the times that you've grown the most have been when you've, been, when you've had this in your life. And the times that you've struggled the most have been the times that you've pulled away from this. 1 Peter 5.8 says that our enemy, the devil, is like a lion. He, pr- he prowls around looking for someone to devour. You've watched Discovery Channel. Who do lions devour? Stragglers. They don't go after the ones in the middle of the pack. They get the ones who are straggling around the fringes. That's who he's looking for. Isolation is a recipe for spiritual disaster. And it can be isolation for any reason. Because you're busy. The enemy doesn't care. He doesn't play fair. He doesn't say, you know, I know you've got a lot going on right now. I know it's really busy at work and you're spending a lot of time in carpool. I'm going to give you a pass. He pounces. He's looking for opportunities and he doesn't play fair. So isolation for any reason, whether it's just circumstances, whether it's apathy, whether it's some rejection deal going on, whatever's going on, he doesn't care. What he looks for is who is straggling, who's not part of the pack. And those are the ones he goes after. And again, if you're honest with yourself, I believe you would say, yeah, the times where I've struggled the most is when when I've withdrawn from people. In Genesis, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And we take that as a married single thing, and it's not. It's an isolation intimacy thing. Some of the most isolated people I know are married. They're just not sharing their heart with anybody, their spouse or anybody else. It doesn't matter that they have, that they're married. They're not taking advantage of the relationship in terms of sharing their heart. They're cutting themselves off from everybody 
around them. You can be married and be isolated. You can be single and have deep and rich community. When, he, when God says to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone, think about the circumstances. This is before the fall, pre-sin. He's living in paradise, literally living in paradise. Unhindered fellowship with God. And God says, that's not good for you to be by yourself. How much more so for us in the places that we live? And if you don't have that, then you're alone. I don't care how many Facebook friends you have. I don't care how many people you can get to come to your 40th birthday party. I don't care whether your calendar is always full. If, you don't ha- if there's no faces for you attached to this description, then you're alone. We're going to open up, and we have small groups, and they, all they do is provide an opportunity for you to develop that. It doesn't guarantee just because you go one, you're going to have that. You have to make a choice, say, to invest and engage and share and all of those things. Now, this is what's tricky. We live, or one of the things that's tricky, we live, if you live kind of in Marietta, I don't know if this is true in Powder Springs and Ackworth and Kennesaw and East Cobb, but in Marietta, I feel like one of the dominant strongholds is superficial relationships. There's this thing here where it's difficult. If you've moved in, it can be difficult to find your place and who do I fit with and where's my crowd and it seems like the goalposts always move and this may be true in other cities but I've never, I've lived in some others I've never heard of some other town where they say, well, one of the things that differentiates us as a crowd is the fact that our parents never moved and so we're called old Athens, or we're old Lexington, or what, I there's this old Marietta, I don't even get it. If there's ever a, a reason to connect with people, it's because our parents didn't move, and we didn't either. Okay, good. When we... But if you're on the outside of that, it's painful if you want to be involved and connected. And so as we begin to talk about family, for some of you, it just brings up stuff that's not good. You can think of the times that you've been rejected, and you've had to sit by yourself, and you're the kid with the tray walking into the lunchroom, and all the tables are full, and you're going, where's, where's there room for me? And so because of that, when we start talking about family, it can make you go, I'm not interested. It's never worked out good for me. We've got about 15 groups that are open. Those are groups that are either brand new, and so they're saying, hey, let's start this thing, or they're groups that are established, and they have room for new people to come. And so I look at it and say, that's 15 opportunities, formal opportunities, for you to connect. We have five or six groups that are not open. They're closed for whatever reason. Some are closed because they meet in somebody's house and they don't have any room. Many of them are closed because there's a a limit to how many folks anybody can adequately pastor. For some folks, that's eight, and for some, it's 20. But people put a lid on that. And so for some people, even though there's 15 groups that are open and there's five or six that are closed, what you hear is, why wasn't I invited to one of the five or six that are closed? And it stings you. And here's something that you need to know about me. I'm not sympathetic to that at all. Not one bit. There's this test called, this inventory called Strength Finders. Many of you have taken it. If you haven't, you should. We'll do this thing called Fit in about a month and you need to come. And we'll walk you through it. And it says, here are these 34 things. In my vocabulary, this is how God has made you. And so the first 8 or 10 or 12, these are things that you're always, like I'm always responsible. I'm always driven by belief and inner core and of convictions. And then there are these 15, 18, 20, 25. These are things that, I'm, that you're sometimes. 
And then when you get down to 27, 28, 30, 32, these are things that you're never. So out of 1 to 34, my 34th, my weakest of the week is what's called includer, which is exactly what you think it is. It means I notice people who are not involved and I pull them in. I never do that, ever. And so if you're somebody who's saying that that hurts my feelings that I haven't been included in this, I'm like the tin man. I'm the tin man on multiple fronts, but with this one particular, I don't get it. I've never not been included. That doesn't mean I haven't been invited. I just don't care. It doesn't, those things don't affect me at all. It just, it doesn't. I'm like, if I walk into the lunchroom and with a tray and the tables are full, I either think, huh, y'all's loss, or I just go sit by myself. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter to me. I'm my own best friend. As long as I'm with me, I'm fine. And so I, it's hard for me to connect. And so I just want you to know that because some of you, this, is a, this hurts. And so you live in a, if you live around the Marietta area and you've got this, I don't know where I fit. And then you come to a church where the pastor's going, I don't, I don't, I don't include, I'm not an includer. It's not, I don't know that I'm an excluder, but I don't think that way. And so I easily could have hurt your feelings, and I don't even know. I, I'm just not wired that way at all, which is not an excuse. It's just it's an explanation. It's the reality there. And then we begin to talk about small groups, and you hear some are, some are closed, and you start going, what about me? And what I want you to know is there's 15 that are open. And I, if you don't have that, I want you to look at those, I want you to listen to these guys stand up and talk and share about their group, and I want you to figure out where you fit. And if you don't fit anywhere, then I want you to be like me, and I want you to elbow your way into the table. I want you to find a place. This is vital. We read it in Hebrews. He said, here are the five things that you need to do. One of the top five, don't give up meeting together, and this doesn't count. Here, you're not getting any of this. You're not transparent and vulnerable here. You're, hopefully, you're with people who love God, but you may not... We don't even, we, you might not even be known. So how can people love you? And yes, I'm committed to your spiritual growth and maturity, but I might not even know your name. So how much am I, how much is that going to help? You've got to be in this smaller group where these things are happening. I really think as I think about our city, one of the most spiritually powerful things we can do is work against this relational culture that's superficial that bases relationships on performance and prestige or parenting, parentage or any of those. Those things that are, they don't matter. They're not kingdom. And if we as a church will begin to say, you know what? When God saved me, he saved me into a family where he's the father and I've got brothers and sisters. And any of you who have brothers and sisters know they're your brothers and sisters whether you like them or not. That's part of being adopted into the family. And if we'll begin to function as brothers and sisters, it can be a channel of grace and healing to our community because they'll say, you guys don't relate to each other the way I'm seeing out here. What's the difference? And again, if this is difficult for you, if the whole idea of family is hard for whatever reason, if the whole idea of being in, in, in family or in relationship is hard because there are things that you don't want to share because you're embarrassed or because you've been hurt or because you're an introvert, or for whatever reason. What I need from you to do is, 
in the kindest way I can say it is to get over that and to make a choice to connect. Recognize that's what I want for you. That again, I'm not that includer, I don't have that. And so if that's what you're waiting for, it's not going to happen for me. Not because I don't care, because it's just not how I'm wired. These groups are what we have. This is, this is how we're trying to include and draw people in. About those groups that are closed, I lead one of them. It's called Deep Roots. You may have heard of it. This is the third year we've done it. The first year, we had one group, and we had 16 people. And the second year, we had two groups, and we had a close to 30. And this year, we have three groups, and we have close to 40. And my hope is next year, we'll have five or six, and that every one of you at some point will, be, will, will say yes to being a part of that group. I mean, that's my hope. It's not to keep anybody out. It's just saying it doesn't do the, the one time or one of the times I tried to do a group and say, oh, everybody, whoever wants to come can come. We had 60 people. That's not a, it's a house church. It's not a small group. None of that stuff happens in a group of 60. So we've had to limit but again, it's not for this, the purposes of excluding anybody. It's to say, how do we multiply this out effectively? And it just takes some time. So I, I, I don't, if that's a thing for you, I don't want it to be a thing for you. I want you to say, this is, here's some open groups, and they're wonderful. And I want you to find one that fits. I don't want you to be the straggler who's easy pickings for the enemy. Uh, small group leaders, you guys can come up. You have a sheet on your... Um, deal there, your chair that you've been using as a fan, you can open it and look, it lists all of these groups in some order, y'all don't need to try to get in any order, y'all just get up here, now they're going to talk for 15 seconds, that's it, which is not enough time for you to get to know anything other than a little bit of their tone of voice, but what I want you to do is look at that sheet, when they tell their name, you look at that sheet, and I want you to think about, is this a group, is this a place where I can plug in? And then you've got this little bitty card deal. And we want you on that card to write your name and your email. And I want you to check every group that you're interested in. And there'll be baskets on the way out. And you can drop those cards in the baskets. And Kim will get your info to these guys who will then contact you. None of the groups will start for a couple of weeks, most likely. So what we want you to do, I just want you to look at that sheet and say, hey, what, what's happening here? Listen to them. And then come up afterwards and ask, make connections, meet, all of those kinds of things. Bo, will you hand somebody that microphone? Maybe at the end. This is Brent Williams. He's going to start. We on? Yeah. There we go. Uh, Brent Williams, we have a men's group Thursday night here at church, 7 to 9. Um, just uh, helping men endure every day and the um, faults of society. I should say. So y'all come out and welcome to have you. Hello, I'm Laurie Pilson and this is Becky Bly and we lead a women's Bible study and it meets on Thursday nights. Um, <laughs> it, this, this is an inductive Bible study of the book of Colossians. It's an eight-week study and will start September 19th. I feel sure that you may not know what inductive Bible study is because we never understand it. We, we ask ourselves this every week. <laughs> and what it is is it's a study of the chapters in Colossians and we in, use interpretation observation and application um, how it applies to our lives today so um, we, we, we always study we fellowship a lot and we pray for each other 
So if you want to make friends, if you don't know anybody, you, it, this is a great place to know people and to make friends. So we'll hope to see you on September 19th. Hi, I'm BJ. This is my wife, Patty Ebel. We are doing a group called Making Marriage Work. Uh, we are an open group for anybody who's married. Right, the the um, group is based on um, the premise that every good, strong, happy marriage requires work. Uh, Andy Stanley says in his series on marriage, make love a verb in your marriage. So if you want to work on your marriage and receive God's blessings for that work, come see us. I'm Ruth Allen Bryant, and um, Patty is actually, um, she helps with our group also. Um, we do the young moms group, and young moms, we mean like elementary school and, um, you know, down to birth. Um, and we meet Wednesday mornings um, starting at 9.30, and we go to about 11.45. And we have child care. Um, we meet here. We have child care available. Um, and we're a pretty established group, but we're always open. We um, want all the young moms in the church to um, to be connected and to have friends. So it's a great group if you're looking for friends. Um, anything else? And looking for encouragement. And so we um, do a Bible study, and um, I think we're doing um, Beth Moore's newest study um, called Sacred Secrets. And um, so we just fellowship, do the Bible study, pray for each other. Anything else? Have retreats. Yes, we do. We have retreats. So anyway, it's great. We are Alex and Debbie Cotta, and we, our group is going to be a marriage enrichment group meeting in our home Sunday evenings at uh, 530. We're going to uh, cover God's blueprint for marriage, that meaning scripture, along with food and fellowship. I'm Dana Poor, and I'm hosting a group at my home Tuesday mornings for moms, and it's really complicated. It's an hour of silence. So um, you can do whatever you want with the hour. You can write a letter, you can pray, listen to music, and then we're going to pray for 30 minutes afterwards, twice a month. Hi, my name's Jen O'Dell. My group meets on Sunday evenings, and we're going to be studying the book of Galatians. My goal for the group is just to get to know one another, to spend time praying for each other, and to dig deeper into God's Word. My name's Jeff. This is my wife, Haley, and we're doing uh, the MAPS group. It's a marriage and parenting group um, with three main objectives. We're going to try to identify like a long-term general plan for your family and where you want to go. Um, the things that you encounter along the way and obstacles that you encounter and how to get past those and then to be, to be an encouragement to one another along the way to get there. So it's kind of like a map. Get it? Like, yeah? No? Yeah. <laughs> my name is Trey Moon. Um, my wife's not here, but we're doing a group here at the church for couples. Um, we're going to look at strengthening the marriage relationship. And then also um, it's kind of geared towards couples with small kids. We're going to try to navigate that to so we can figure out how to do our deal with crying babies and staying up all night and all that good stuff. So. I'm Courtney. This is my wife, Nori. We lead Poof. We have a terrible name, but we love Jesus. Um, it's a group for people in their 20s and 30s, uh, regardless of marital status. We meet on Wednesday nights at 164. Uh, we do some Bible study, prayer, and some fellowship. Switching gears, standing in for Steve Egan for uh, Saturday morning men's prayer, second and fourth Saturdays. Um, just come, share your heart, get some prayer. Horace and Linda Sheely, we meet on Wednesday evening, 7 9 o'clock. Uh, we're having a really charming study. Uh, we're talking about uh, viewing eternity entering into life. So we're going to spend some time looking at biblical foundations for the whole concept of judgment and what that means. 
So the people it's not intended for, I don't care if you're new to the Bible or you got your doctorate in theology, you're welcome to come. We're going to talk about it freshly and spend time in the Word. And uh, the people it's not for are people who are comfortable with trite cliche or dusty dogma that's never seen the light of day because we're going we're gonna to toss it up and we're going to beat it up and we're going to find out the heart of God in the midst of it. Brent and Ann Purcell, we led a group called Connect. Uh, this uh, semester we'll be doing a sermon-driven um, talk, so um, come and be a part of that if you want to. We have about uh, 12 people who show up every week, and uh, we do child care, potluck. Uh, it's a Friday night group, so we often do something fun on Friday nights if there's something available to do. So come be with us. <coughs> Excuse me. Alan, Alan and Maggie Bowling. Very nervous, obviously. Uh, we read through Christian classics, and so what we have lined up for this fall so far is we're going to read through the first part of Book of Romans, and then we also sprinkle in uh, Flannery O'Connor in there about every month just to kind of break it up. And it's an open group. We meet here, and we're welcome to have you. My name is Andrea Schmidt. Um, I'm a missionary kid from Japan, so I grew up there, and the Lord's just been stirring my heart to start praying for missions a little more, and so I invite you to come pray with me um, for the missionaries that we support and any other missionaries that y'all support. So. Thanks. So here's, you got those cards, fill them out. This is what I want you to, and I want you to come up and make connections. If you're interested in judgment, let's be clear, that was Forrest in Linda's group. So I'm assuming there's going to be a line out the door. No. We actually had lunch the other day. It is going to be really good. I would encourage you if you're interested in some deeper things to talk with Forrest and Linda. So all of these groups are great. I'm going to pray, and then I want you guys, y'all are free to go after I pray. I encourage you to come up. These are like they're lined up at prom waiting on somebody to come dance with them. So don't leave them. God, we thank you that you've placed us in a body. God, I th it's not the easiest in the world, and it seems particularly difficult here in the community that you've planted us. But God, we, my desire, and I know it's your desire for every man and woman in this room, is that we would all be in life-giving relationships. God, I pray that we would, everyone in this room would know the reality of being grafted into family. They'd know what it is to have brothers and sisters who love them, who love you, and who are committed to their best. God, I pray for any here today who have felt shunned or rejected, can't find a place. This whole topic is painful. Lord, I pray that you bring healing into their hearts and you would use one of these groups as a channel of your grace. God, I thank you for these folks who are saying, I want to I want a shepherd, I want to lead, and I pray that you would form and build these groups over the next couple of weeks that you would orchestrate all of the relational connections that each of these groups would be a, just a, a, a microcosm of, of the church. God, it would, all of the expressions of what it means to be in the body, I pray, would be evident in each of these groups. In Jesus' name, amen.